Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Uh, Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Jesus gets pushed into these situations all the time in the Gospels. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this one? What happens to the woman who remarries over and over? Who will her husband be in in heaven? Hey, Jesus, is this kid suffering because of his own sins or because of the sins of his parents? Hey, Jesus, are those people over there the really worst sinners? Frankly, these questions make sense. We happen to live in a really senseless world, and it would be nice if Jesus could illuminate for us the truth of what's going on. Behind all the questions, whether the questioners are trying to entrap Jesus or not, is this inquisitive nature that is so at the heart of who we are. And in this particular scenario, aimed toward the Messiah about who the worst sinners are, it is just so human. It's just so human. The delegates who went to the special general conference, they were given opportunities to stand and to speak in favor or against particular motions uh, regarding the church's opinion about human sexuality. And so there were, of course, the classic arguments. God made us male and female. Male and female. They are citing Genesis. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Citing Jesus. There were appeals to cultural shifts that are changing. There were appeals to be obedient. To God's word, and it went on for days and days and days. But now, about a month later, there are a few moments that have really stuck with me. I was there in the room when this all happened. I previously shared about the exact moment when the traditional plan was voted on, upon which some people fell to the ground in mourning and in crying and in grief, and at the same time, another group gathered around uh, and started dancing and singing in celebration. I truly believe that that moment, this disparity of the valley and the mountaintop, is a moment that will haunt me and this church for the rest of its days. But there were two speeches made prior to that vote that have also been ringing in my mind, particularly with the scripture that Deirdre read for us. Early in the debates, there was a woman from Pennsylvania. She stood, she went to the microphone, and she was there to speak in favor of the traditional plan. And she used the same talking points as some people had before her. But as her time was winding down, she decided to ramp it up a degree. And she said, Jesus was very clear that it would be better for someone if a millstone was hung around their neck and cast into the sea than to continue living in sin. And then she sat down. For a moment, the entire convention center was just bored, sitting there in passive observation. But then the wheels in our brains started clicking. Wait. What did she just say? Did, did she just say that it would be better for gay individuals to have a millstone hung around their necks and be thrown into the sea? Was she just implying that the time has come to kill gay Christians? And as everyone in the room started to think about what they had heard, the previously silent room started to get very, very loud. People started screaming. People started yelling and were demanding an apology from that woman for making the kind of claim about Scripture that she had made. Because apparently to her, homosexuality warrants consideration for a death sentence. And then later, 
And what felt like a very different moment, though now that I think about it, was actually pretty similar. A pastor from the Great Plains Conference stood up at the microphone to speak against the traditional plan. He, too, relied on some of the same talking points that had come before him, and then he decided at the end to ramp it up another degree as well. He said, I want to talk about biblical interpretation. He said, Paul? Paul talks more about women keeping silent in church, women praying with their heads covered, women not teaching men, women submitting to men, and women not wearing jewelry than he does about same-sex relationships. And yet, he continued, the proponents of the traditional plan support women in ministry even though Paul commands them to be silent. Then he paused, and the wheels started clicking in our heads. Wait, was this guy just saying that we should remove women from places of power and pulpits? Was he trying to say that women shouldn't be allowed to speak in church anymore? But then he went on, and he said that to him it was very interesting that the highest priority of items to be discussed at this conference weren't same-sex relationships, weren't gay clergy, weren't weddings. It was the pension system. The highest priority wasn't people, it was money. And he said, this is very interesting, given the fact that Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. And so he ended by saying, if you really believe the Bible is clear, then I invite you to turn in your pension funds before you do anything else. (laughs) Apparently, to this man who spoke at the microphone, hypocrisy warranted greater reflection than other sins. I thought about those two moments a lot. I thought about those particular moments a lot because it seems to me as if we really haven't moved very far from the time of Jesus. The self-righteous anger, the self-righteous feeling was with us in the beginning and it is still very much with us today. Hey, Lord, do you think those Galileans over there who are suffering, that they're, they're really the worst sinners, right? No. Truly, I tell you, no. But unless you repent... You will die like them. What a hopeful word from the Lord, is it not? Unless you repent, you're going to die like them. Robert Farrar Capon says that good preachers, and I would say good Christians, should be like bad kids. Good Christians should be like bad kids. They ought to be mischievous enough to sneak into dozing congregations, steal all of their bottles of religion pills, spirituality pills, morality pills, and flush them all down the toilet. Why? Why should we be flushing all those things down the toilet? Capon says it's because the church has drugged itself into believing that proper behavior is the ultimate pathway to God. That all we talk about, all we're obsessed with, is whether or not we're being good enough and all those other people are being bad enough. And yet we don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about good behavior today because all we're really doing is pointing at everybody else's bad behavior. It's why we're forever comparing ourselves to others in such a way that we are superior and they are inferior. And the crowd's conversation with Jesus about the greater sins and others, it hints at our continued fascination with sin, our obsession with guilt. If the God we worship were to punish us, were to rain judgment down upon us for the sins we've already committed, then few, probably none of us, would be left to worship in them in the first place. But guilt, guilt, whether we feel it or we want others to feel it, it's like this addiction. And we Christians think it's good and right for us to think and talk about guilt. It's how half the Christian world works. Make people feel guilty for how bad they are, scare them enough with the punishment of eternal fire and damnation, and they'll show up in droves in church on Sunday morning, right? 
Bible, you know, this book we talk about every week, it's not obsessed with guilt. If it's obsessed with anything, it's obsessed with forgiveness. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. So what do we make of this repentance in the season of repentance? What do we make of the turn, this need to turn back to God? Of course, there should be repentance. But repentance is always supposed to be a joyful celebration, not a bargaining chip that we cash in to get God to put up with us. Repentance is a response to the goodness God has done. It is not a requirement to merit God's goodness. Repentance always comes after we know we're saved, never before. God isn't waiting somewhere far and beyond until we muster up the courage to fix all the problems we've created. God instead meets us exactly in the problem we've created, in the sin of our lives in the person of Jesus. We seem to be stuck in a world where we foolishly feel like we have to earn God's love and mercy and grace. And even worse, we do this in the most paradoxical of ways by pointing out the so-called greater sins in other people instead of looking at ourselves. We want to blame everybody else for the ills of our life. Why do we do that? Because it makes us feel good. Because it makes us feel like we're right. Makes us feel like we're worthy. And that's when the most scandalous truth from the entirety of the Bible comes ringing. God has consigned all to disobedience that God might be merciful to all. We can certainly feel guilty about our sins. We probably should feel guilty about our sins. But feeling guilty about our sins alone doesn't do anything. In fact, feeling guilty about our sins usually just leads us to do more sins. Attempting to overcome our sins, to leave them all behind, is a worthy goal, but it is a far greater task than any of us can realize. It is something we will never finish. The only thing we can do with our sins that does anything is admit them. Naming them, claiming them as the truth of our condition, it is a necessary part of putting everything into perspective. When we can claim our sins, when we can admit that we're really no better than those people during the time of Jesus who want to know the sins of other people, when we know who we really are in our heart of hearts, that's when we begin to see that it's not just me who's a sinner, but we are all sinners. And only when we see that we're all sinners can we begin to celebrate the fact that every one of those sins has been nailed to the cross in Jesus. All this parading out or self-righteous judgments against others for their sins or their beliefs or their feelings, being worse than our own feelings and sins and beliefs, it perpetuates a world in which the right get righter and the wrong get wronger. It leaves no room for anything else. It is a complete denial of the good gift, the very best gift of all, that is God's grace. See, God's grace, it works without requiring anything from us. No amount of self-help books, no number of piously repentant prayers, no perfect family or perfect job or perfect paycheck or perfect morality or perfect theology gets us anything. Grace is not expensive. It's not even cheap. Grace is free. And I can't believe I'm about to say this. Grace is like manure. (laughs) Grace is like manure. It gets dumped 
on the fruitless fig trees of our lives. It gets all co-mingled in the soil of our souls. I don't know if you've ever dealt with manure. It is messy and it stinks and it stays with you. And it is so necessary. Nothing is quite as ironic as knowing that another creature's excrement is often required for us to eat food. Amen? Amen. Friends, this is weird. But of course, we don't like thinking about it. That's why we're so quick to identify with the man with the fig tree. Because when, what happens when we have something that's no longer bearing fruit? Whether it's an actual tree or someone in our life or our own lives, what do we do? We cut it down and we get rid of it. And assuming that we're not all growing all of our own food, we have all grown remarkably comfortable with a world in which we don't even have to think about what was required for us to have food on our plates. We are either ignorant or blissfully unaware of the struggle that is at the heart of the production of our consumption. We don't like thinking about how manure has been spread over all of the ground of the food that we eat because we like having whatever we want in our kitchens. We don't like thinking about what goes into the production of our food in the same way that we don't like thinking about how the cross has to come before Easter. This cross, Jesus' cross, is the manure of grace that God has spread throughout our lives. It is a stinky and frightening thing that we'd rather ignore or dismiss. And yet without that manure, friends, we are nothing. The best news of all is that God has taken this manure, has spread it in our lives precisely because we are fruitless. We worship a God of impossible possibilities, a God who offers us far more chances than we ever deserve, a God who willingly drops manure on our lives again and again. Cross is like manure. It is good, it is bad, and it is ugly. But it is also our salvation. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.